Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's episode, we speak with Philip Zelinsky, a seasoned entrepreneur and longtime China resident with a wealth of experience across various industries, including green energy, tech, F&B, retail, and education. Our conversation starts with a deep dive into China's booming green energy space. Philip has had a front row seat to China's EV revolution, which is shaking up the global auto industry through his work for GreenCell, a leading green battery company. Philip also shares details on his latest venture, which aims to help Chinese students gain admission to top global universities. He breaks down how China's engagement with international education has changed in recent years with the disruptions of the pandemic and a more mature consumer of international education opportunities. Finally, we deep dive into China's rapidly evolving startup ecosystem as Philip has an optimistic view on China's startup scene and highlights several sectors primed for significant growth, especially in biotech and hard tech. Enjoy. Anything related to EVs. First of all, government supports it. Second of all, you have a lot of like the talent pool is great and the world's clearly sees that China is doing like scaling up at speed and delivering projects. So even if the US is, you know, investing 200 billion the next few years in the new factories and stuff like the manufacturing expertise in EVs is, is here right now. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to the negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Philip, welcome to the Negotiation Podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Looking forward to to our conversation today. Likewise, likewise. Okay, let's kick things off. Where in the world are you today that you are recording from? I'm in Beijing. Pretty gray and cold today, but um, yeah, I've been home for about eight years now. I. Uh, I must say I do like the city, even though it's not the kind of place where you come and you instantly fell in love with. You kind of get used to get used to it. You know, you need to find different kinds of vibes in different neighborhoods, and then in the end, you are actually comfortable and confident to deal with all the crazy,、uh, you know, distractions all over the city. <laughs> You know what? You could say that about China almost in general. It's, it's just such a tough place to live in. Yeah, it's like, and it's like an onion, and you got to peel back the layers of Beijing, right? I think Shanghai, it's more obvious, but Beijing, like the little hole in the wall places, like finding your favorite little restaurant in the Hutongs, or like how to navigate around, like like there's, it takes time. It is not an easy city to really. But man, once you figure it out, it is awesome. 
Yeah, you gotta explore. And yeah, like you know, when you're driving on like the furthering roads, all you see is like you know, seventies, eighties kind of buildings, very like communist-like. And you're you're thinking, there's a lot of better places around the world. Why am I here? <laughs> but then you meet the people, because like you get you know, you get the diplomats, you get the artists, the scientists, the business guys, you know. And, all sorts of different people. And a lot of them are very well-educated, ambitious, and uh, there's definitely a spe special kind of energy here. That's why, you know, some of the biggest companies in China are still from Beijing, even though you'd assume it's, you know, it's only S SOEs and uh, government. Because uh, Beijing attracts a lot of very ambitious Chinese people. So the best universities are here. And that's how they figure out to make the new Xiaomi or Meituan or, uh, you know, TikTok. So uh, even though it doesn't have exactly the same kind of atmosphere as Shenzhen or Shanghai, it's actually when you, yeah, when you get to know it, it's, it's actually quite awesome. Philip, and I think anybody who saw the spelling of your last name would probably guess that you are from Poland. You grew up in Poland. Tell us how you ended up moving to China. Well, I grew up in a family that would always travel, you know, living in Europe is very convenient in terms of visiting other countries. Um, so, you know, every summer and winter holidays, we'd go to, you know, skiing in Italy, uh, going to Denmark or France or whatever. So I was very used to li living in Poland, but exploring the world step by step. And then I remember when I was at, you know, probably... Yeah, that was probably before middle school. I went, we went to Egypt and I was like, holy cow, this is, you know, so different. You know, there's more things in, in the world than Europe. And I felt, and I, growing up, I also really enjoy reading uh, travel books. So I always had that kind of feeling inside me that at some point I would like to live abroad. And then by the time high school came, I went to the U.S., I was actually a Rotary exchange student. So I was uh, in St. Louis and that further opened up, you know, my, um, you know, the degree of, it heavily reduced my um, time to get adjusted to, to new places. So after US, I went to the UK. I graduated from a university in London. And then I was thinking, you know, like, oh, should I start working? I got an offer from Procter & Gamble. I was 21 when I got my master's and I was thinking, no, like I don't want to be stuck in, in the office space for the next 45 years of my life. <laughs> uh, I haven't gone to US and UK just to, you know, settle down and, and uh, be a boring, you know, corporate clerk. Like, let's, let's see the world. And I did get a scholarship from from Chinese government it was some sort of special program between European Union and, and Chinese government. And some of my friends did that before. So they highly recommended it. And I was thinking, well, yeah, why not? Let me, let me do a gap here. Let me go to Asia. Cause that was, you know, I've never been to Asia at that point. And I was never like, big manga guy or I don't know. I mean, I liked watching Dragon Ball, but like I was not a fan of Asia uh, or like I wasn't in particularly interested in, you know, in Samurais or, or, or whatever. But then I, I did get a scholarship uh, to go to Nanjing and um, 
I didn't really go to class. I didn't really learn that much Chinese my first year, but I got to know so many interesting people. And I could see how different China was than, than Europe and, and the U.S. There was just so much energy and uh, I don't know, like everybody was looking into the future. So I felt like I want to be part of that, that amazing energy. And that was 2010. So it was quite different from now because, uh, yeah, China has changed remarkably. So even, uh, you know, in terms of technology, back then it was not a technological superpower. Like everybody was under uh, all Nokia's, you know, hardly anybody had an iPhone. Like it was really different country. But I felt like something something will change pretty soon in this country. And, and I was right. Okay, let me jump in and, and ask some questions, uh, almost qualifying a little bit. I'll jump into you've been to a lot of different places in China. So I want to kind of start there and we're we're going to jump into your your work kind of history because you've been through several different industries. You know, you're a startup guy, um you're into education, you know, entrepreneurship is is thick in your blood. But let's just start with a little bit of 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 mapping where around China have you been? You've been to several places. You know, what's your favorite city for doing business and what has really kind of sustained your love of being in that area of the world? Yeah, um, I've been everywhere in China. I mean, any major city, any major province. I mean, I haven't been to some, you know, like far away Western provinces like Ningxia. But uh, yeah, last year I did about... No, that's that's Sichuan. No, I, I yeah. so like some small provinces in the middle of nowhere where people go out to see national parks. You know, like very backwater kind of places. I I did about yeah, I guess about one hundred thousand kilometers within China last year alone. <laughs> so I was on a business trip every single week. Um, so like, you know, manufacturing hubs, especially like Guangdong, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, and then areas around Shanghai. So Hangzhou, Ningbo, Wenzhou, um, Suzhou, they're all very important, big cities. And, uh, and what I like about all this travel is that they're really quite different from each other. So even first year cities in China are very different. Um, I don't think if I could say the same thing about um, cities in the U.S. or uh, major European cities. Um, so, yeah, like you, you get Beijing, which is kind of stuck in the 90s. And then there's Shenzhen, which is in like, you know, 50 years from now, like everything is shiny, clean and, uh, and amazing. And then I have international Shanghai where, uh, you know, like it's just so full of great food uh, parties and uh, yeah international big companies so i i've lived in nanjing shenzhen for about four years and beijing for about eight years and i have to say i i probably like shenzhen the most because it's just why well, you not know, like it's it's the economic miracle of china like that city works like you can have six meetings planned across the city in one day and actually everything will work out. Like you can actually rely on the city. Whereas in Beijing, you know, like there's traffic or somebody cancels, like, and it's much more about relationships and 
supposedly the northerners are much more direct but uh i don't know when it comes to dealing with business i think people in shenzhen are just upfront on average they're younger on average they they're much more into new technology and they just want to make things work so you don't waste as much time trying to figure out what actually the the other party wants from you um and Shenzhen is also just a great place to live. Like I, I, you know, it's like yeah, it's kind of like Silicon Valley because you're on a highway, you can see the mountains, you can see the the bay, and uh, you just feel great. Even though you're in this huge city, you also get a lot of places where you can completely relax and uh, enjoy the nature. So that's a nice combo. Let me ask you: you're a, you're a startup guy. You've been around. You've you've heard of my you know, the things that I've even been involved with before, like Jungle Jasu or China Accelerator. Did you ever listen to another podcast back in the day called the China Startup Pulse? I mean, I've never been a huge podcast guy until maybe last year because they just, I don't know. I just didn't really dig into it. But now I, I do enjoy this format. I think it's, yeah. it's genius. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, that was something that I was doing back then. And I mean, but you're right. Like Shenzhen is just that it, it, it moved really fast. It reinvents itself. It's it's shiny. It's technology advanced. Um, you know, Shanghai. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, it's it's beautiful. It's 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 like a, a retail mecca. It's 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 got a blend of old and new. Um, it's 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 got a lot of cultural influence, even in the architecture. Um, definitely newer architecture. And then what you said about Beijing, it is it's old school. It is PRC central. It is a little bit of a concrete landscape. It has some really really cool stuff, um, but you have to unearth it and you have to dig it out and. Yes, it is much more about relationships. It's much more about the Guanxi because it is PRC central. And it's who can be more fashionably late to a meeting um, is almost like the the cheers of whose glass can be lower. And it's this competing thing. And it is for those of us who just want to get stuff done and we don't care about the, all the meandering and, 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 and the dance involved with that stuff. It's it can be a little frustrating when you're just trying to hurry, which a lot of entrepreneurs like yourself are. Okay, so let's get back into talk to us about your industry, your industry resume. What are the different industries that you've worked in in China? Talk to us a little bit about those industries from that perspective of your experience in those industries there and then end up taking us to now into how you got into entrepreneurship. So I started my career in strategy consulting and I, that was like the dream for a number of years. And once I got into one of those top firms, I was like, Oh my God, like, I don't want to be like my colleagues <laughs> in the next five, 10 years. Um, you know, the pay was good. So we're sitting in some fancy office, but, uh, I felt like a bunch of high schoolers could do the same thing if they knew how to make a shiny presentation. Um, and then I, then I was quite convinced I want to run my business, but um, I wasn't exactly sure what to do. Like I didn't have like a major passion at, at that point. And well, I first started working with different European startups. Um, 
representing them in Asia and trying to set up sales operations, sourcing. And so, yeah, like back in the day, like maybe between 2012 and 2015, China was just full of startups, full of ideas, full of incubators, accelerators. Everybody wanted to be a millionaire and everybody wanted to start a business, uh, which was quite new in China. And I, I loved that. So like the, the interesting part about living in China and doing business was that people would come to you all the time with new ideas, new business concepts, new collaborations. And it was almost hard to say no. And okay, I need to focus on my core business because, uh, you know, because you had all these distractions. Um, uh, yeah, how well, so yeah, I worked for some European companies and then I decided to jump into entrepreneurship myself. And uh, the ma major project I had back, back in the days was uh, collecting data and, and retail spaces. So we were feeding this bigger Polish company that invented like an offline cookie. So, you know, how online you have cookies, uh, you know, they track what you're doing. So, they came out with a similar concept for offline. Uh, and the way it worked was with, you know, beacons, so Bluetooth devices sending a signal and checking out where you are exactly in, in the shopping mall or in, in a retail store. Uh, there are a bunch of te technologies trying to do this kind of micro localization, but um, yeah, we came up with a way to collect data without the need for users to to download anything on their phones. So just because you'd be in a Gucci store in Beijing, we would know that you you visited. I mean, we wouldn't know who you are, but we knew the the retail traffic information, and that was kind of. Kind of great because we had over 20 people across different cities. Money was good. But then the, the company that we were feeding the, all this information to, they they were raising money and um, it wasn't a smooth process for them. So they, they kind of ran out of money for, for a few months. And then uh, they didn't even tell us about it. So we we kind of had to wind down. <laughs> and now they're, they're still valued at a few hundred million dollars. They're called Cosmos. Was this pre-HIPAA GDPR? Yes. Because yes. I know, not, like, I mean, China doesn't have that, uh, but it yeah. was, eh? Okay, I was curious. All right, keep going. Yeah, so then I, I kind of, uh, yeah, from making a lot of money and having 20 people on your, on, you know, in your team, I went to, like being almost in debt. <laughs> so uh, I had to uh, reinvent myself. And so uh, the past few years, I've been mainly doing um, new new vehicle industry, so EVs. I've been working with this company called Greensell. They're also based in Poland. They, uh, they sell all kinds of charging equipment. So they started with power banks, but then they, they went into all kinds of batteries. For recycling purposes, which is a big trend in Europe, so like instead of buying a new laptop, just change your battery. Uh, instead of buying uh, a new drone, change the battery inside, and, and so on. And uh, now, the past few years, they've been pushing for electric vehicle chargers. And as you know, this is a huge industry in China. Like um, this has also changed a lot in the past five years. So I don't know when when did you leave China, but uh, you see all kinds of new brands and 
new concepts and um, China is definitely leading in this space. So it's been great being part of the, the this industry because I see firsthand what will probably happen in other countries in the future. Well, did BYD do triple the sales of Tesla last year? Yeah, but they, they also sell BEV. So they also have hybrids. So no hybrids. About yeah. half of their cars are um, pure electric. So that's why people are always saying, "Well, but it's not you know Apple to Apple." Well, now even in terms of pure electric cars, they did also Tesla, and you know they're also going into premium market. They uh, yeah, I think the the way the the company is run is amazing with the vertical vertical integration and um, getting into all kinds of different businesses in within the sector. Um, but yeah, anyway, so coming back to my story, I, I'm actually leaving that space. I've been, uh, working on my new, new venture for the past year or so. So the February is actually my last month with that company in Greensill. And now I'll be in education, which I know is not related, but, <laughs> um, I think my expertise is running companies from operations point of view, like dealing with, with sales channels, finding clients, dealing with employees. And so my, one of my best buddies from like 15 years ago, he, he's been in education forever. He had a very successful company, but he left that venture because of some disagreement with, with the previous business partner. And we were setting up a new shop, which does similar stuff, but more upmarket. Um, and yeah, we're helping Chinese students get into top 20 universities around the world. Because there's still tons of people who want to move abroad. There's still tons of people in um, you know international schools here that cannot even really attend Tsinghua or Beida, which are top you know Chinese universities. And there's also a lot of families just trying to move money out, trying to distance themselves uh, from you know for whatever reasons. Maybe COVID. Maybe they they had some deals that they're afraid of that will come up later. So they, they just want to move to Hong Kong or Singapore or even Canada. And one way to do that is also through, you know, sending kids to get a university degree, stay, get a green card, and then they can bring, bring the family over. So yeah, that's what we're doing right now. Well, we also have the startup visa in Canada, which is, uh, right. A part, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of designer immigration happening now around the world um, for those who want to relocate. I mean, if you want to move to Italy, they've got 90, they've got properties for 99 cents, as long as you're willing to put $20,000 a year into improvements into it for three years in a row. If you have a startup, yeah, you can apply, you can come to Canada, you can bring you and three co-founders in their families and you get a four year uh, permanent residents, regardless of whether your startup even survives or not. It's, I think countries are starting to get smart about trying to attract the right kind of people to come and enticing them to, uh, to come and live in those countries. So it's not just immigration. It's like, Hey, how do we try to entice the type of people that we want to continue to be able to build this country? So that has been some interesting development. Not that China really does a lot of designer immigration. I think they have more than enough people there. They've been doing that for, for a long while. It just, mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I don't know. The I think the the numbers are increasing, and people are they just it's kind of like an insurance policy for them, just in case something. Yeah, you know, there's case. more opportunity uh, in in Australia or US. They they want to be part of that, and also okay. China has you know Chinese business people have been so accustomed to you know this relentless growth forever past 40 years so now that the economy is not growing as fast as the as it used to some people are you know they cannot get used to this new reality and in europe in europe if we still had four or five percent growth that would be that would be amazing but in china it almost feels like a crisis even though there's no crisis it's just people are not used to a slower rate of growth um so it's very psychological I'll take two all day long here in Canada. And one of those days we're going to get that too. Okay. I want to, so there's a bunch of stuff that I do really want to dive into. I want to dive into kind of the new energy space uh, about green cell. I want to talk about electric vehicles and I definitely want to save time to get into your education venture, but quick question. What are just some of the trends you're seeing in the startup scene right now? Well, I think a lot of new potential is in bio biochemical stuff so pharmaceuticals i think there's a lot of investments there's a lot of acquisitions that's still one of the industries that is really thriving um also definitely battery production um anything related to evs like there's you know first of all government supports it second of all you have a lot of like the, the talent pool is great and the world clearly sees that China is doing, you know, like scaling up at speed and delivering projects. So even if the U.S. is, you know, investing into $100 billion the next few years in the new factories and stuff, like the manufacturing expertise in EVs is, is here right now. So, um, yeah, these two. And there's also, yeah. But the, the whole ecosystem has changed. Like the entrepreneurial spirit has changed the past years because of COVID. Also because the government has been trying to to deal with with the likes of Alibaba, Tencent, but also online education. So there's been some crackdowns. And I don't think they were wrong about it. They don't want like very dominant force in any industry. It just it kind of it kind of scared people. They felt like maybe the the government is against entrepreneurship now, but it's it's not. There's still a lot of programs where uh, young people, students uh, get subsidies, they get special treatment, they get access to flats and healthcare. So uh, China is still very much open for business. <laughs> It just uh, there were some high profile cases where, uh, you know, where people got, you know, suddenly got into trouble. <laughs> so uh, people kind of relax, calm down. And now they're trying to find out what's the next new, mm, new big thing. Where's the gold rush? So I would say, yeah, pharmaceuticals, EVs. Other than that, I mean, there's still a lot of innovation going on and like, streaming um so live live commerce i think it's so very very developed here i think there's also quite a lot of new platforms you know like there's 
much more competition for Alibaba now than five years ago. So people are trying different concepts, different uh, ways to sell things to people. I think people also want to, uh, they're not like kind of stupid customers that they used to be when I first arrived in China. Now it's, it's also about saving money, finding good deals, finding discounts, so, so more financing options. Because back in the days, people would go into a car dealership and pay with cash for a new car. Now, <laughs> uh, they actually make much more comparisons. They do their research, they do their homework, and they want to get a good good deal uh, in terms of the product and in terms of financing. So, uh, yeah. The society is changing. Um, the political regime has changed a bit. So uh, um, a lot of entrepreneurs are trying to figure out where is the next big thing. Let's dive straight into your education venture, because I think not only is the education space interesting, I think entrepreneurship is interesting. And I think a foreigner, an expat, being an entrepreneur in education in China is really interesting. I'm not going to say it's super hard, even though I think it might be super hard, but it is, it is, um, it is, it is a path not for the faint of heart. And so tell us first, what is your education venture? I know you've kind of alluded to it already, but you can go a little bit more in depth and then just Tell us a little bit about what is that landscape of being an entrepreneur in education in China like for you? Well, so our company does primarily college consulting for, well, we start with middle schoolers or early high school. So it's, it's a long process of helping students really, we call it like, it's, it's also in an industry in itself. It's called background improvement. So basically we improve somebody's background by advising which summer camps to attend, what kind of extracurriculars to, to choose, how to really stand out from the crowd and what American universities, because there's many American universities, what, what, they do, what do they pay attention to? Because you need to be like a well-rounded individual. Like in, 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 in China, most like old school kind of thinking about getting into colleges, you know, like get good grades and that's it. But, you know, like Harvard gets... You know, a lot of perfect score uh, people with, you know, 1600 on SAT. So how do they determine who to, who to get? So uh, we, yeah, we help with music, sports, leadership, debates, you know, all kinds of different activities that kids these days can choose from. Then we, we guide them through the whole process of, you know, filling out papers. And then once they get the offer, we also advise them on how to establish themselves in this new place. So once they land in Boston, like instead of wasting time trying to figure out what is U.S. about and what's college life about, like we actually prepare them, like we tell them what kind of fraternities fraternities might be useful to to join, like what kind of clubs are uh, important for Goldman Sachs and, and so on. And what the, the way we structure this product is by assigning a, a team of mentors to, to each client. So uh, as, a, as a teenager, you get to speak with a lot of interesting people. So there's one person that kind of guides you through the whole process, but then you also meet people who 
used to study at the university that you want to go to and do finance uh, because you're interested in finance. So we expose young people to experts in their fields so that they get a better understanding what really is that they want to do. Because I don't know about you, but like when I was, you know, when I was in high school, I, you know, my parents wouldn't be able to really tell me like what really, uh, what's, what's going on in finance, what's the difference between VC and PE and what's, you know, M&A and IPO and, and all that. And I, I don't think college counselors in schools or teachers also know much about a lot of industries. <clears throat> so we have a network of about 1,000 people that we, you know, employ on a part-time basis. They're successful people in their own fields and they happen to have a few hours for our students each week. So um, it's, it's, it's a very Chinese and maybe Korean thing. Like I, in, in Europe, this kind of industry doesn't really exist. And in America, only like wealthy families try to find external help. But most people around the world do do all of this DIY. But if you do a DIY, you know, the getting into Harvard is so hard. It's almost like trying to win a medal in, in the Olympic Games. Instead of trying to coach yourself and just, you know, like if, if, if you're a, I don't know, if you're a hockey player, like sure, you can uh, play uh, pond hockey with your friends every day for eight hours a day and you can ask your dad to give you some tips. But if you can actually get some amazing coaches and go to summer camps, where uh, you work on different drills, um, then you have a better chance of getting into Olympic Games. And this is the same with education. It just, um, there is a lot of people who want to get into Ivy League and uh, most of them won't be able even if, if they have the right kind of profile because getting into Ivy League also requires like nice packaging. So you need to tell a story and unfortunately for Chinese people, most of them are not storytellers. So we have them write a, a beautiful story. Um, so yeah, it's a very comprehensive thing. It spans over a few years. And it's actually, yeah, it's, it's fairly expensive because it's it's yeah, it's over a hundred thousand dollars easily, usually about two hundred thousand dollars. So multiple questions come to mind. First of all, I think there's a lot of value in what you're doing and the problem that you're solving because it's very difficult for them to cross that knowledge gap as parents to know what to do for my child, only knowing that I like them to get into these kinds of schools. I just have no idea how to do it. So there's a lack of knowledge, awareness, and understanding. So if there's already that lack of knowledge, awareness, understanding, how do you market to them to convince them that this is something that they should be aware of, that they do need to focus on, and that um, you're the ones to help them? Right. Like it's it's almost like for those who don't know what they don't know, how do you get them to know this? Well, honestly, it's, it's not that hard to show them that they need help because um, 
only 16 students last year got into Harvard from China, you know, out of like 8 million uh, graduates. So it's, it's tiny, tiny number. So it's really extremely hard to get into those top schools. Um, you show them profiles of people who got into Ivy League, and then you compare those kids with your kid. Because we make an assessment, like when we first meet the client, we make an assessment of of a student, and then it's quite clear uh, if he even has a ch- he or she has a chance of getting into Ivy League, like f- three four years down the road. Um, I mean, there's a lot of competition. Is very. Uh, very big market, but there's no dominant player. And of course, a lot of people want to know why us and not somebody else. Well, so my business partner, he has had a lot of success and a lot of experience. He also, he was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. I went to London School of Economics. So our backgrounds are already pretty, pretty impressive. And uh, I work in strategy consulting. He was in Goldman Sachs. So it's not that we graduated from top schools and we went straight to education because we already had that banner. We actually finished good schools. We went to pretty good companies. So we we got real world uh, industry experience and then we decided to do education. And we get really amazing people to work with us. So, you know, even... For your uh, college application paper, uh, we get people who not only studied creative writing or English literature at Harvard, but they also have been successful published writers. So maybe they work for Wall Street Journal or maybe they wrote several books. So we really get like the top 1% of people to help you with a particular task. And I, you know, I tell Chinese parents, because usually, you know, they're the decision makers, like we do with students, but ultimately the decision maker is the mom or dad. So I tell them, well, would you, you know, like look around, everybody here speaks Chinese and everybody could write some Chinese, but would you get a delivery guy or somebody who has, you know, PhD from Tsinghua University? And they're like, well, yeah, of course, PhD from Tsinghua. So... There's so many companies with, you know, bad resources in China, and they also cannot access those networks of amazing professionals in North America. So um, we, 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 yeah, this is the main reason why people go with us, because uh, even if somebody went to Harvard, but is Chinese and hasn't really worked in any industry, it will be very hard for them to access those networks and convince people to work for them. What are the top schools that they're trying to get their kids into? Um, What are typically the areas of academics or the programs that they're looking to have their kids go into as well? What fields of study are generally, are they looking for? And are they able to marry the brand name of a school and the program they think they want their kid to get into, are they able to separate the two when they need to, or are they stuck and you have a hard time convincing them that if this is the field, this is not the school, they should go for this one? It's actually, you know, a lot of parents are quite open these days. So they let their kids decide where and what to study. 
I, we hardly ever meet uh, families where, you know, the kid absolutely needs to study medicine or, or I don't know, economics. Uh, these wealthy families, they, yeah, they give quite a lot of freedom to the kids. And, and so we, we see all kinds of different majors. And of course, everybody, everybody dreams about Ivy League, but then in reality, most people end up in and University of California system because it's, it's close to home or closer to home. <laughs> and uh, these universities have huge Chinese body uh, population. So, so they, um, yeah, they're much more likely to get into UCLA or uh, I don't know, Berkeley than Yale or, or Harvard. NYU? Yeah, NYU, NYU has a lot and Columbia. So NYU and Columbia have a lot of Chinese students, um, which are not bad schools, but yeah. So it's not hard for us to convince people to go for NYU in the end. Or no, let me let me rephrase that. So it's not so hard to tell people, okay, apply to five different schools and, you know, this is the dream school, but, you know, it's not, I don't know, your possible probability of your kid getting into it is, I don't know, 15, 20%. But then uh, once they get the offer and it's from NYU instead of Harvard or Yale or MIT, they're, you know, for them, it seems like it's not a great university, but, but it is even, you know, American wealthy families would be happy to send kids to NYU. Just in China, a lot of people really want only the best. And then if you get into NYU or UCLA, it's like, ah, oh, well, my kid is a screw up. <laughs> um, but they don't realize that, you know, there's still, lose, well, let's say losers who went to Harvard and there's still extremely successful people who went to NYU. So it, it, it really matters what you do with your college experience, who you get to know, what kind of relationships you build, where you work, and then you can still go anywhere else for masters. So if you excel at NYU, you can easily do a masters at Harvard. So uh, it's not like if you don't get exactly what you want right away, uh, you, you won't be successful. So it's a lot of like education. So we need to tell these kind of, yeah, sharing a lot of these kind of stories and information to parents. What are some really good examples of those background adjustments or the work that you do over the three, four years as they get closer to applying? What are the things that you're typically trying to help them understand and work on so that their application looks better? Well, first, what what do you want to study and where? Because most of these people don't know. Unless they're extremely driven and, you know, from 14-year-old, like they, they know that they, they definitely want to do medicine because they're passionate about it. And um, I don't know. Like there are some like visionary kids that know exactly what they want to do, but most kids don't. And most of them do, uh, you know, the way they think about the future is very emotional and uh, not scientific at all. So they just want to go somewhere where their, their friends are going. So like a bunch of them want to go to UCLA. So yeah, I also want to go to UCLA, but, or they want to study economics or, or law because, you know, they, they believe that's well-paid career. 
But then once we uh, start working with them, by exposing them to different people and giving them opportunities to to see uh, what lawyers do or what people in finance do, they they get much better view of okay, this is for me or maybe this is not for me. Um, so we first figure out what they actually really want to study, then select universities for them, and then spend a lot of time trying to push them into the right opportunities to show that um, that they would be good candidates to, to study, I don't know, biology or something. So not only summer camps, not only extracurricular activities, but also even research opportunities. Um, uh, yeah, all kinds of different leadership positions in and outside school, coming up with your own initiatives, volunteering, charities. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of different things you can do. Just how do you stand out from the crowd? Because... A typical Chinese student has high GPA and uh, did cello or violin and uh, debates. So, like, it's also about calculating and making decisions based on data. <laughs> what, where, where do you have highest probability of standing out? So, for example, uh, Harvard and all these other schools they assign points for sports, for example. So in terms of sports, the way they see your achievements is, is it local level achievement? Is it national level achievement? Is it international? Um, and obviously, if you're in China and you play badminton or ping pong, then there's going to be millions of people competing with you. And it's going to be extremely hard to be even locally, you know, remarkable because if you're from Beijing there's 20 million people and a lot of them play badminton or ping pong but not a lot of them sail or not a not a lot of them play ice hockey at a competitive level so if you start working with us early enough you know because we also have clients who are 9 10 11 we still have a lot of time to guide them into sports like lacrosse almost nobody plays that in China so can easily be, well, relatively speaking, easily be fairly competitive at a Beijing level in lacrosse uh, as opposed to badminton. So, uh, yeah, like we have a lot of information, a lot of data. We know how these schools evaluate students. And, and so we, we, we do like a comprehensive strategy. And we just stick to it and we measure progress. So every quarter, you know, if you, if you're improving or not, because also Chinese, Chinese um, clients like that, they, they want to quantify everything. It's hard to sell service in China because, uh, you know, it's all intangible. So we want to make it as tangible as possible. So they know what they're paying for. Philip Zielinski, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Todd. It's been a pleasure. As I usually say, for everybody listening to us audio only, don't forget to head over to the WPIC YouTube channel where you find all of these long-form podcasts as well as shorts and other pieces of content for you to consume. And for those of you watching on video, don't forget we have the audio podcast only on all of your favorite podcast platforms. But for me and everybody at The Negotiation and for Philip, thank you very much for listening and or watching, and we will see you next time. 
Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.